0: Hi, Linny. Hi Nancy. Welcome to episode 53 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on the Front Porch. We have three episodes because Sparks Like Stars, just could not be contained in two episodes. We have the episode that you and I discussed. We had the episode with our Afghanistan scholar. And today we interview author Nadia Hashimi about her novel. Oh my goodness. And we could keep talking about this book.
1: Yep. We're so excited that she was able to stop by and talk to us on the front porch. We cover a lot of ground with her. We talk about Afghanistan, the history, hopes for Afghanistan, her approach
0: to writing, and of course, the book, Sparks Like Stars. Yeah, it was a great conversation. Nadia Hashimi is a pediatrician-turned-novelist who draws on her Afghan culture to craft internationally best-selling books for adults as well as young readers. Her novels span generations and continents, taking on themes like forced migration, conflict, poverty, misogyny, colonialism, and addiction. With translations in 17 languages, she's connected with readers around the world. She serves on boards of organizations committed to educating and nurturing Afghanistan's most vulnerable children and empowering the female leaders of tomorrow. She is a member of the U.S. Afghan Women's Council and the Afghan American Foundation. Originally from New York, she and her husband live in Maryland with their four curious rock star children and Justice, the hungriest Rhodesian Ridgeback you've ever met. (laughs) Well, let's get to Nadia Nance. Great. Welcome, Nadia, to the Front Porch. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here. Well, we loved your book,
1: Sparks Like Stars. And Satara is such a wonderful character. I did not know anything about this book. I just downloaded it on my Kindle and started reading it. I thought it was a true story. So I wonder, how did you come up with the idea for the main character, who's a little girl growing up in Afghanistan?
2: Yeah, no, thank you for that. I I actually I do the same thing. Sometimes I dive into stories without um, without reading the blurb, and it's sort of a different kind of adventure. So I've gotten that comment a few times. And uh, this is definitely not a memoir. It's it's certainly not my story. And I never hope to write any of my characters as myself. But this particular story and that main character comes from the origins of the, of the novel itself. And by that, I mean, I was taking a look at Afghanistan's history at the very peaceful time uh, that my parents enjoyed in Afghanistan, where there was no war, where my mother could go to school, she could become a college grad in engineering and then go off and get her master's, where many women could do the same, um, where there was a lot of progress that was happening and there was music and, and it was sort of this live thrumming city of Kabul. And uh, and in 1978, things kind of went through a major upheaval with a military coup that happened in April. And so, you know, I came across this newspaper article that talked about that military coup of 1978 and specifically the fact that the bodies of those who'd been killed on that night had been buried in an unmarked grave, which was only discovered decades later. And among the dead, Among the remains uh, were the remains of one of the president's grandchildren, well, there were four children, four grandchildren, actually, the youngest being 18 months old. And and that really got me thinking about a story from the perspective of a child who could talk about this really um, tragic, bloody moment in Afghanistan's history, this specific event that happened in the palace, and then also... Tell us the story of what it's like to carry that trauma, uh, that loss of homeland, that loss of family for a lifetime. Part of,
1: Nadia, what got me was not only the trauma part of that, because I'm a therapist. That's my day job. I liked the way you handled um, the trauma this girl had, the impact that it had on her and uh, how she heals from that trauma when she goes back to revisit Afghanistan. But part of what threw me (laughs) was all of the uh, medical terminology. And I think at some point I hit on your name to see if I could find out more about you. and You were a doctor, so see, it all fit into my master plan that this really was real because you're using a lot of terminology and things that's medical. What led you from pediatrics to
2: writing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a bit of a leap, but in some ways not so much. So I've had a lot of time to reflect on what the commonalities are between medicine and writing. And I think at the core, these are two fields that really have a focus on the humanities, but in different ways. And, you know, when I was working as a pediatrician, every time I would step into a room, I was stepping in there to try to understand the family better, the individuals better, to get to know their story. What brings them to you? What's the backstory? Um, You know, I would see a teenage girl, for example, with with belly pain. But you have to understand, well, what's going on at home? Uh, What are the dynamics? You know, there's so many things that could be going on that could be leading to this particular set of symptoms. And and in the storytelling, that's a similar exploration is trying to understand the backstory of all the characters, the origins of the conflict, um, to better understand how this person is going to have that arc, that evolution um, to move through it. My journey was one where I kind of got a nudge from my husband. He just noticed about a year into our marriage, he was like, "You really really love reading." And he thought, you know, "Why don't you try writing a story? I feel like you are wanting to tell something." And you know, I blew it off at first, and then it kind of lodged itself in my head and I started plucking away on my computer and and trying to play around with a storyline and and now here I am. Had you done any
0: writing previously?
2: No, I hadn't. I mean, I, I've done a lot of reading. I think that's really my foundation for the storytelling is the is the reading. I was the kid, like so, and probably anybody who's listening to your podcast, in the libraries, just kind of going through the stacks, reading as much as I could. My first job was assisting the school librarian, now elementary school, and I felt really, really important because I got to stamp the little date on the little cards in the back of the book. But yeah, I think that was really my foundation, was just immersing myself in so many different kinds of stories. And so now, is
0: your husband completely insufferable now that you've become a best-selling author that he was the one who had the idea to encourage you?
2: <laughs> no, he's been okay. I didn't change my last name when we got married, and uh, and that's probably the only thing where he, I mean, he didn't care before, but then he was like, "Ah, oh, it would have been nice <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's great. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah, I have to tell you, I thought the prologue to Sparks Like Stars was one of the most beautifully and effectively crafted openings I have read in a long time. So in our first episode about the book, I read the first three paragraphs because I just wanted listeners who hadn't read the book yet to hear what a beautiful job you do taking us into this world. So John Truby is a writing guru. He says the opening scene is the foundation of every character and every action in a story and that it tells the audience what the story is about. I thought your prologue did that so poetically. So I'm curious, did the prologue come first in the chronology of your writing? Did it emerge after you had figured out the contours of the story? How do you go about creating your stories?
2: That's a great question. I can't remember exactly, but if I remember correctly, this story, and in most of my stories, the prologue, I've written it after, or when a good chunk of the story is done. Mm -hmm. Because then it's sort of, I I kind of view the prologue as an introduction to the rest of the story, and um, almost like a little tiny appetizer of what's to come. Yeah. And, and that's where, you know, for this story, I'm, I'm almost certain I wrote it when I was almost done with the entire novel. And I just wanted to go back to really the heart of the story and that moment um, where she is forced to decide if she's going to, you know, make it or not. If this moment's going to take everything from her, including her own will, or if she's going to survive. And if she does, why? Uh, And that's what I wanted to convey in that prologue. How do you go about writing scenes and chapters? Do you
0: start from what you think chapter one will be and write through? Are you a discovery writer? Do you write with or without an outline? What's your process?
2: I'm in all of the above, right? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think with each book, I try something a little bit different. And I try to learn from the last book that I wrote and all the pain and struggle. And I think, okay, this time I know what I'm doing and it's going to be so much easier. (laughs) And and so sometimes I have written without much of an outline. And then next time I was like, okay, I need to have an outline. And then you get into where, okay, that was way too much time spent on an outline and I can't even stick to this outline because things change and then you yeah. go back to okay not so much of an outline but I don't know what <laughs> month it is when I hit chapter 12 so so I go back and forth I think it's a it's a constant like work in progress I do think it's helpful to have an outline and it's helpful to also not be so stuck with that outline that you can't accept and tolerate change because the stories are very organic things happen and I think that when I'm when I'm really having an easiest time telling the story, it's because the characters are leading. I'm not leading. Mm -hmm. And I'm following their movements, their instincts, their decisions. And that's going to then naturally take me into directions that I would not have chosen or predicted. And so I have to build in a lot of flexibility um, into the process. Mm -hmm. One
1: thing that I appreciated was you not spending any more time in that foster family than you did? Because I was so traumaed out by the time we got there. And I was wondering, you made that kind of short. Did you purposely
2: do that? Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said about including the different types of trauma, the different types of experiences that children have, that people have. And so there's an importance to me to uh, making space for it and including it. And not being so afraid to name it, but without exploiting it and without sort of re-traumatizing readers. So that's a tough balance. And you know, I try to do a bit so that I am a little protective of myself as well as, you know, anybody who's gonna pick up the story. Hearing you say that, I think that was
1: just spot on for me. Like I needed her to get out of that that foster care. You know, I was really feeling like, this girl, how much sports in- could can- she take, you know? <laughs> That's interesting that you were, had that sensitivity in writing that for the reader, because I certainly felt that. We want to talk about the guard. Nance and I took away two differences with this situation. The guard plays an interesting story because he ends up being part of her healing and, and part of her struggle and wanting to move forward and dealing with this man who was there to protect her, but she felt was the one who murdered her family. Nancy and I had two differences. I thought, oh, he did it, absolutely. And Nancy's like, I don't think so. I don't think that he did. I think the author's trying to sort of cast that shadow, would you say, Nancy, of doubt that he was the one that did it, like it didn't really matter who did it, it was the system and he did what he was told to do.
2: You know, I think part of it was, was me wanting to struggle with the character, even from the beginning of the story. I wanted Sitar to struggle with this individual and his actions or inactions because I was struggling with it too. And I think a lot of us struggle with this, you know, well, how how culpable are you if you were following orders, right? That's like a, a timeless question. And then we just look at it in different contexts. And so here is one context. And, you know, how far do you have to go or what do you have to do to redeem yourself from something that you've done in the past? So with him, you know, I think he also is struggling with that question.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, sure. Yeah.
2: yeah. As as you alluded to, I mean, he says at some point when she asked him, did you, was it you who pulled the trigger? He says, well, does it matter? Because I think he's accepted a level of culpability at that stage in his life, um, looking back for having been involved in that night and seeing the way things played out. I tried to leave it mostly vague, but I thought that to me, he's not the one who pulled the trigger. And so when he says, does it matter? Then he's admitting even more culpability than he probably has to. And I've had a lot of people really react strongly to the main character's reaction to him because some people are like, why didn't she just forgive him? You know, and then other people are like, other people are like, well, no, absolutely she shouldn't have forgiven him. I'd never forgive him if he was involved in something like that. And there's really no right or wrong. I mean, this is just the 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 many ways that people can process this. And so I, you know, I wrote this character. Satara not to tell us the perfect way to respond to someone possibly being involved in the murder of your family, but rather to sort of guide us through that internal struggle and watch her fumble around with it. And what made it even more complex
0: is that he's the one who rescues her from the palace, keeps her safe, gives her to the American diplomat, and that for him is his best guess at getting her to safety. So in a way, he is her savior as well. But of course, she, you know, she's just not able to really see him in that light at all.
2: If I were her, I don't know how I'd feel. I don't know if I would say, well, thanks for saving me. It's too bad. It's a tough <laughs> right. one. But But I could also understand why people feel like He did save you in that moment. He could have gone a different way. And doesn't that count for something? Mm -hmm. Doesn't that mean something? And so, like I said, there's really no right or wrong answers. And I don't know, you know, if I were truly in that situation, how I would feel. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I like the gray in the story. Yeah. I don't need a tidy little pretty package all lined up perfectly and all in pretty wrap. I like the fact that she's struggling I have a feeling he's struggling and can't put to rest what he did either.
0: He has suffered in his family as well with his son's death. So no one is all good. No one's all bad. They're just trying to figure out how to move forward in a world that has been turned upside down for everyone, really. I thought that you really beautifully portrayed Sitara's nostalgia for an Afghanistan that really no longer exists, and not just for her personally, as the privileged daughter of a powerful family, but as a citizen of a liberal, westernizing country, as you talked about, your parents, Afghanistan, there are hippies, women wearing mini skirts, her mom wears very beautiful Western clothes. Even though you haven't lived in Afghanistan, do you feel that sense of dislocation of what Afghanistan was for your
2: parents and what it is now? I've grown up just waist deep in the nostalgia that Afghans have for Afghanistan. Every family gathering, every time people get together, they will either, you know, my, my husband was born and raised in Afghanistan in Kabul. And so oh. even he will sit with my parents. He's not of the same generation as them, but they've sort of memorized the map of the city of Kabul. And so they will talk about, remember down the street, remember when you went across from this movie theater. And do you remember when you went around that little roundabout, you would go down the road and it's a small city, but it was a beloved city to the point where when people talk about Kabul, they don't just talk about Kabul, they talk about Kabul John. John is like the term of endearment that Afghans use for one another. So you would say, you know, I'd call you Nancy Deer or Linda Deer. And that's how people refer to that city too, is wow. it's it's not just Kabul, they would call it Kabul John with this like incredible nostalgia and like i said this has been what i've grown up with hearing almost every gathering and that was part of what i wanted to convey there because it's not just that these individuals have left that homeland that city that they grew up in and have been able to travel back to it from time to time that's not the case right they they left that city a lot of them not by choice and that city was not there for them to go back to it changed. I mean, cities will always change when you leave, but this one changed very dramatically, like a complete shift. Um, When I went to Kabul in 2003 with my parents, it was my first time going there, but their first time going back. And we were able to find my my father's childhood home. Uh, His two brothers were actually still living in there. My mother's childhood home had been reduced to rubble and so literally everything was gone. She, she could only recognize it by like one corner of a stairwell that was that was still standing and everything else was just yeah. down to the ground. And that's Sitara's experience too. And that's her experience. So, yeah. you know, when, when Cher tells her in the car, you know, your cobble is gone, he's trying to like drive it home for her. And that's sort of the sentiment that I feel like a, a lot of people in my world have felt. That their cobble is gone; it's not even there for them.
0: That really came across. I wondered, in some ways, whether Satara's family was really a metaphor for, or for the country of Afghanistan. It's this loving, progressive world that's destroyed by the revolution and then hastily buried and forgotten.
2: I think it is, and and that's what I think that's why I wanted the main character to be a child because you really get a sense of of how deep the loss is because she's carrying it for the rest of her life and she grieves it for the rest of her life. Uh, And that's what I see. I mean, my parents have never turned away from what's happening in Kabul. They have their ears to the news constantly. Everyone's got their eyes and their hearts following, you know, what's continuing to unfold even now.
1: What do you or what would you say your parents really want people to know about Afghanistan and its people?
2: So I think that the story of Afghanistan and its people has been told by images of war, conflict, tanks, like rifles slung over shoulders, bombings, and, uh, and poverty and oppressed women. And there's so much more to the story of Afghanistan. That's a lot of the reason for why I wanted to talk about this particular period of time. And, and to show this family, because this family looks a lot more like my family looks a lot more like the families that I have grown up knowing friends and relatives, extended family members, and this too exists that we have a culture that's really vibrant and colorful and that we love music and our parties are rowdy and sometimes our grandmothers completely rule the house. And, uh, and sometimes we've got, you know, aunts that make inappropriate jokes uh, and all <laughs> of that, right? Like all of that, the stuff that really is the salt of life, all of that is there too. It's not just, you know, tragedy and war and, and people who have suffered. Well, that's beautiful. You grew up with that
1: culture, but also you were born in America. So you have sort of a blend of two cultures. You married a man who was born in Afghanistan. How old was he when he left? His growing up had to have been very different culturally than your parents. And what did he think of your book?
2: (laughs) That's a loaded question. (laughs) He finished high school in Afghanistan, so he was there for part of the years where there was conflict and war. And so, you know, like a lot of my cousins, for example, who left later, who experienced what it's like to hear that whistle of a rocket and then wonder, you know, where it's going to land. Uh. And so his family had um, a rough journey. They literally had to, like, sneak out of the country and then make their way, sometimes on foot, sometimes by train and in different ways to get from you know one place to another, ultimately landed in in Germany and were there for a time until they got accepted to the United States and they came to reunite with other family members here. So a very different journey. And he grew up in a very different time in in Kabul, in the same city with the same map, the same buildings, everything. And yet, you know, when they were living there, there was the insecurity of conflict which my parents didn't have. So my parents kind of grew up in this very peaceful and, and golden age. Um, my father the other day was talking about how, how lucky he felt that that's what his experience was. And that he, he left in the early 70s, so he didn't leave because of conflict. He didn't know what was on the horizon. And, uh, and he feels really fortunate that he never saw it. Um, so those that's the two different experiences that they had. He he likes this book. He's also a good sounding board for me. So I will often, you know, sit around and kind of brainstorm plots and, and ideas with him. So Tara's journey
1: out of Afghanistan kind of sounds like your husband, like you had to go by bus and train and all the different ways to get out of there after the, there was a coup. Did you draw any of that from his experience
2: when his family fled? To be honest with you, no, because I did for another book where I talked about an Afghan family that's refugeed for, for when the moon is low. I drew on my uncle's stories and then partly his stories. But the truth is that I could draw upon any Afghan. I mean, there's such a huge diaspora because so many people have had to flee conflict in Afghanistan over the past few decades. Globally, Afghanistan's been the country that's produced the most number of refugees. Most of the time, it uh, was overcome by, by Syria. Syria kind of rose above the, the numbers for Afghans. But it, with the num- steer, like these decades of conflict, the number of people who have had to leave is just staggering. And that's why if you talk to any Afghan individual, we have relatives everywhere. I've got relatives in Norway, Germany. England, Austria, Australia. I mean, I've had relatives in in Africa, in India, and all because people had to flee. You mentioned
0: that Afghanistan is, even in the news today in March, a UN report called Afghanistan, the most repressive country in the world for women and girls. You serve on a number of boards and organizations committed to educating and nurturing Afghanistan's most vulnerable children and empowering female leaders, including the U.S. Afghan Women's Council and the Afghan American Foundation. What can you tell us about these organizations and the work that they're doing?
2: yeah so these are um they're great organizations they're different afghan american foundation for example is one that is civic engagement and advocacy organization that looks to represent the afghan american population and really get our community voting, aware, organized. And the past couple of years, it's been a lot around those who were evacuated from Afghanistan, newly arrived here. Like these are now rising Americans who are adjusting to life. And so trying to rally some support and resources and get them jobs and and, and kind of get people on their feet because that's what they need. U.S. Afghan Women's Council, sort of this umbrella organization that brings together different individuals doing work to support education and women and business entrepreneurship within Afghanistan. Um, Part of the issue has been that it's become a huge challenge because of the the climate and, and what the conditions on the ground are and all these restrictions that the Taliban have issued against women in particular have made it really difficult. And that's why a lot of these organizations have had to retool and take a look at online programs for education, digital access. You know, how do you have some workarounds? Where can you get permission locally? And how do you just keep people afloat while things are really dark in the country? That's wonderful that
1: you're a part of those organizations to help. Nadia, are you working on
2: other books or you have other things that you're working on? Sure, I am. Uh, I just actually today turned in revisions on my what will be my first young adult novel.
0: Wow!
2: So that's exciting, and I'm hoping uh, as long as nothing gets delayed, that it should be out next summer. Congratulations! Thank you. I don't have title that I can release yet or anything, but I will say that it, since it's a YA, it's a story of a an Afghan American family, some young people and what their lives are like dealing with a climate that is sometimes hostile to new immigrants coming into a town very good wow that sounds interesting i liked in
0: sparks like stars how after 911 you have satara confront the racism that she experiences in the United States. People making assumptions about who she is and what she believes just based on what they happen to observe of her.
2: Yeah, I stay away from, you know, like I said, I stay away from telling my own story in any of my books. But but that's the one place where Sitara and I kind of collide is that we were both in New York City in some phase of medical training uh, on 9-11. And Mm. so it was hard not to include that moment because it was one that was really important. I think obviously for our country and then sort of narrowly for the Afghan American experience, because the Afghan Americans in the country kind of went from anonymous to, to kind of looked at and examined in a very different way at that moment. Mm -hmm.
1: I was glad that you included that too. I did want to ask you about the ring because for me, reading about her ring was sort of something that grounded her to her parents, her culture, her tradition, and who she was. Can you tell a little bit about what you wanted the ring to symbolize and the value that it had for her?
2: Sure. So that ring, I mean, that really came from A couple of places. One is, like you said, for people who are displaced, what can you carry with you? What can you take with you? And how much does that stabilize you when things get really rocky and when you're feeling really lost? And so I wanted her to have something. And that's what it is. I also wanted it to to allow me to talk about the antiquities and the treasures that were buried in Afghanistan, yeah, and to kind of allude to an even further back history of you know ancient civilizations and and relics and things that have been kind of slowly uncovered. But then all of that gets paused. and all these things and these pieces, you know, what happens to a country? and afflicted by conflict like what happens to its antiquities and uh, and one of the most interesting i think conversations that's been happening in the past few years is around the rightful ownership of antiquities that have yeah. made their way into museums or other places through back channels let's just say right mm, yeah <laughs> right <laughs> And so so that's what I wanted to kind of explore. And, and she has the question too of, is this really mine to hold on to or, or should it be somewhere else?
1: Well, I really like that part of the story and it, it did remind me of World War II and sewing jewelry or important things in the hem of their clothes and just to try to keep them with them as long as they could.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's where you know, in any country, any people who are affected by conflict, all those decisions that are made of, you know, what do you take? What do you leave? How do you salvage as much as possible? How do you pay for these journeys? Like that's all universal. All of that comes in different flavors, but it's the same struggle.
0: Yeah. I also thought her interest in the Romanov family was so interesting that she felt some kinship with the story of the four Romanoff girls.
2: Yeah. So I was about halfway through writing this story and I was talking to a friend and and she you know, was asking me, so what's your work in progress? And I kind of told her a little bit and she was like, oh, it reminds me of Anastasia. And I thought, wait, what? And I, I, I kind of knew the story, <laughs> but, but it'd been a while since I looked at it. And so that night we watched the old Disney cartoon with my kids and I was like, you yeah, know, that's so intriguing. And then I started going down that rabbit hole and wanting yeah. to know more about the story and then finding out, oh, these people had stood up and claimed to be Anastasia and, and they weren't, And but maybe they were. And, and, and I thought, well, if I am this sucked in, what would happen to Sitara? And I thought, well, she would totally get sucked in, wouldn't she? And so... Yeah. Because I was thinking, well, here she is thinking no one else has ever lived this experience. Yeah. And then she comes across the possibility that, well, maybe someone has. Maybe you're not the only one. And and I thought she would be completely, you know, compelled by that. Uh, and that's why it's, it's a part of the story.
0: Yeah. I thought that there were so many aspects of her as a character that made her so fully dimensional. So when Linda said, wait, I thought it was... An autobiography. I could totally see it because she has such depth. Uh, she's a beautiful, beautiful character.
1: Yeah. I mean, I loved the way you captured the trauma that she had and her journey. You had to have done some kind of research on trauma and
2: children. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, for me, it's, it's maybe a little bit of observing children um, as a pediatrician in different scenarios, going through different things. Also, just observing people around me who I know have been through quite a bit and trying to make sense of their actions, of their specific responses to certain situations that are, you know, sometimes you're like, wait, why are you, why are you reacting so strongly to this? What's going on? And those observations are kind of what I wanted to tie in here. Also, a bit of a message, you know. In pediatrics, people say, oh, children are so resilient. Like they can get really, really sick and they bounce back. And they say the same thing about Afghan women, that they're so resilient. They say the same thing about refugees, that they're so resilient. Once they get here, they can thrive. It's been bothering me more and more lately that we keep talking about this resilience almost as a way to excuse or forgive what they've been through. And it's not that they are resilient and that they endure at no cost. It takes a a really heavy toll on them. And that manifests in some way for every single person. It's either compromising their relationships or their ability to perform a job or or their sleep at night, whatever it may be. But all of it does manifest even in the most resilient people.
0: Yeah.
1: I, I was glad that you had a love interest in there too, so that we could see in her story how this was affecting her as an adult
0: based on the trauma that she experienced. So I appreciate it. To me, this was a totally believable story. Nadia, I know that people will want to stay in touch with what's
2: going on with you. How can people best do that? You can email me through my website. I do actually have a contact button there if you want to send a message for book clubs. I'd love to Zoom with book clubs whenever I can. Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook. Those are my social media of choice. If I'm on Twitter, it's because I'm really angry and probably not a good time to chat. (laughs)
0: That sounds, that sounds great. That. And uh, we'll put links to
2: all of that
0: on our notes page also. I should say my In Real Life book club happened to do Sparks Like Stars this month also. And everyone in the book club absolutely adores this book. So for anyone who hasn't read it yet, definitely pick this book up. You'll You'll really love it.
2: Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks
1: so much. Thanks for joining us. It was lovely meeting you. Likewise. Thanks so much. Nancy? Yes. I saw some parallels between Nadia and you. (laughs) What? Yes. (laughs) In what way? Professional women, extremely intelligent, very scholarly, who leave their professions to join writing and the research that they need and the... Thirst for knowledge and getting the story out, and how do I want the story? Oh my golly! Oh my
0: goodness! I'm so flattered <laughs> to to even be considered, even a little, little tiny, tiny bit like Nadia. She's a real inspiration. <laughs> she is an
1: inspiration, but I almost was like, "Oh, I'm talking to my sister." <laughs> Just a lot of parallels there between the two of you, and very supportive husbands that encourage your writing. Well, that's. Oh my- That's true. What a lady, though. I love the fact that she's giving back to all these humanitarian organizations and she's trying to change the way people see Afghanistan's and she's trying to impact life there, uh, help with immigration here. Oh, my goodness. And she's a writer full time and she's raising children and a dog. I don't know. You might have heard the dog in the background. Yes. He did stop by the front porch momentarily, but he was
0: here. <laughs> yes. Surprise visit by justice. It was fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thoroughly enjoyed meeting Nadia and hearing some of the the background to her writing and her ways of thinking about the characters, I just thought that was all so fascinating. And for me, one of the joys of this podcast is learning about places and people and history that I felt like maybe I wasn't very familiar with. And like you, I felt like I didn't know a whole lot about Afghanistan. Like much of the Middle East, I did know that they had a period of westernization that then crumbled. But this really has forced me to do a lot of research around Afghanistan. When I saw on the front page of the New York Times on Sunday, there was a special supplement about women and girls in Afghanistan. I was so excited because I had this connection from the novel that otherwise I would have looked at and read through, but wouldn't have felt so touched by.
1: Yeah. I'll have to look at that. I I didn't see that. I don't get the times, but that looks interesting, Nance. Yeah. One of the things that I like about Our Front Porch, Nance, is that I learn about how writers think about their books, their research, and then how they assemble a book And put things together. She describes a couple different techniques that she has used in the past. And I have obviously learned some things watching you navigate and create your writings. Mm -hmm. So I think that part is fascinating in and of itself.
0: Yeah, I loved how she was talking about how with every book she tries like maybe a different technique and... I have heard other authors say that as well. One author said, well, I finally got to the point of realizing I knew how to write that book, but I probably don't have any clue how to write my next book. That is both heartening in some ways, but also terrifying because (laughs) I feel like I'm (laughs) learning how to write. I'm getting more confident in my writing. And I keep thinking, yeah, soon, this is just going to feel like extremely comfortable. But I think most writers never get to the point where they're like, oh, yeah, I've totally got this by the tail. <laughs> well, that's kind of what she was saying. Exactly. Like, yeah. I try
1: different things and I I work on, on different ways of doing this. And she thinks about a storyline and then she has to figure out how to do it. And then she has yeah. to kind of go back and say, oh, I think I need to incorporate like the Romanoffs throughout the story. And Mm -hmm. I remember you saying the same thing about your play. You would take a step and say, no, I've got to change this. And I have to start from the beginning and build this in. And, and it it does sound exhausting, but I think (laughs) you two have the same kind of personality and drive to be able to sit down and create beautiful works of art in your writing by just a labor of love and just refining the piece over and over again. So you get it to where it needs to be.
0: Yeah. Again, not feeling like my name belongs in the same sentence as Nadia's, (laughs) but thank you. (laughs) Well, Nancy moving on to next month. Yeah. What are we reviewing entirely different kind of book. So the book is called Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon. And it is a book about parents and kids and completely nonfiction book. The subtitle of the book is Parents, Children and the Search for Identity. So his proposition in this book is that being exceptional is at the core of the human condition. That difference is what unites us. He writes about families coping with deafness, dwarfism, Down syndrome, autism, schizophrenia, or even multiple severe disabilities, and talks about uh, children also who are prodigies. For him, all parenting turns on a crucial question. To what extent should parents accept their children for who they are? And to what extent should they help them become their best selves? So very interesting book. This was the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award and one of the New York Times Book Reviews' 10 Best Books of 2012. So I think this will be an interesting piece for us to discuss next month. Sounds like it's loaded,
1: Nance. Yeah. Loaded of goodies. (laughs) Loaded of goodies. Okay. Well, thanks
0: for listening. Our website is thefrontporchbookclub.com. Our episodes come out twice a month on the first and third Wednesday of every month. Okay. See you next time, Nance. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye.